Well, hello, Lakeview Church. It is so good to be with you this morning and looking forward to sharing this message with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know, we are in one of, I think, the most important times in uh, kind of our year as a church. This is one of the two sessions we have of 21 Days of Prayer. We're in the summer session right now. We started this last week, and we've been seeking the Lord in prayer every morning here at 6.30. And yesterday, we had a wonderful time of just praying throughout our campus here, just literally going and, and walking into rooms and laying hands on doors and just asking God to do a work here. This is a really important season because... We believe that God has been at work, but we believe God wants to do even greater things, right? Right? Some of you don't sound convinced at all. It's going to get better. The Lord wants to work in and through his people, amen? And that's why we give ourselves to prayer. We, we lean in and we ask God to give us a new spiritual intensity and we seek him with a dedicated fervency during this season and we, we ask him to pour out his spirit among us and to do his work in and through our church, particularly as we're heading into a new fall season of ministry. And so we're asking God to do great things in and through us. God's been at work among us. Just this summer, we've had people that have come to faith That's good. You guys are catching on. You're going to get the hang of this here pretty soon. We've had people come to faith. We've had people respond to say, I believe God's calling me to be a foreign missionary. We've had people respond and say, I believe God's calling me to go into full-time pastoral ministry. And dozens and dozens of you have said, you know what? I believe God's asking me to be an everyday missionary to represent him right where I live and right where I work, and I'm going to do that. And just over the last couple of weeks, you guys have accepted the Live Sent Challenge and you've made lists of names of people that you believe God has placed you in their lives to make an impact on them for the kingdom of God. And you're praying for them regularly. You're adding value to their lives. You're looking for opportunities to invite them to church. And whenever the spirit of God gives you an opportunity, you're sharing your hope and you're sharing your faith. God is at work among us. And I believe there are even greater days in front of us. Last week, we started a brand new message series, which we're calling The Spirit-Filled Life. And uh, today is the second part of that series. And today, I want to talk to you uh, about a message that I'm calling Refiner's Fire. And last week, we started this series by saying, you cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And we kind of did a quick survey of, of some passages in the New Testament to say, it is really impossible for you to ever become a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And if you want to live the Christian life to its fullest expression, you cannot do it in your own strength. You need the Holy Spirit of God in you, at work, shaping and forming you and empowering you and enabling you to live live this life. And our key verse that we looked at last week is Ephesians 5, 18, which says, don't be drunk with wine, which will ruin your life, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like alcohol, when a person drinks that and becomes drunk, they've given themselves over to control of that substance. And they lose control of themselves and and they actually give themselves to being controlled by something else in the same way we are to give ourselves fully to the Holy Spirit so that we stop being in control of our lives and we let the Holy Spirit begin to control our lives. Don't be drunk with wine, 
but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we talked about last week that we need to be under the influence and complete control of the Holy Spirit. And we said that, that that's really the key to the victorious Christian life. And, and so with that kind of as the backdrop, we're going to spend today and the next couple of Sundays talking about if we are under the influence and complete control of the Holy Spirit, what happens in our lives? What, what, what begins to, to become different about us? What, what is, is shaped and formed in us? What does the Spirit of God do in our lives when we give him control? And, and today we're going to talk about the fact that when we give ourselves to the Holy Spirit, one of the very first and most important things that the Spirit of God does for us is he purifies us and he makes us holy. This is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Now in the passage that Nikki read for us just a couple of moments ago in Acts chapter 2 verse 3 I want to just kind of draw your attention to this verse because we're going to kind of zero in on this image that's in this verse. In Acts chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. What looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and kind of came to rest on each of them in the upper room. Now, Acts chapter 2 is really a story about the birth of the church. This is the, the moment when the, the people of God, the, the disciples of Christ are gathered in the upper room and the spirit of God is poured out on God's people in fullness for the first time in that way. The spirit of God had been active and working in people's lives, but, but this is the moment when the spirit of God is really poured out and, and the church is born. This is the moment that Jesus talked about when he said, I'm going to go to the Father, and it's good for me to go to the Father, because when I get there, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you, a, a counselor, a helper, an advocate, and he's going to walk with you. This is the moment where that comes to, to, to pass. The Spirit of God is poured out, and the church is born, and the Jesus movement begins to get traction, and thousands of people start coming to faith, and the church begins to, to take shape in the book of Acts, and miracles are performed, and the gospel expands, and, and, and missionary movements begin, and this is kind of the moment where it all starts. But right in the middle of this moment, there are these tongues of fire. I mean, has this ever happened to you in a church service? It has not happened to me. But as I read this passage, I think to myself, why on this important day in the life of the church, this moment when God is pouring out his spirit in a new way to give birth to his church, to his body, to his bride, why does he use this image of fire? And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, because I think that, that there's something powerful when we understand the image of fire and why maybe God used it on this particular day. Now, in Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. That's what the scriptures tell us. Pentecost is a festival or feast, a celebration of the harvest, but really it's a celebration of, of the fact that God gave his people the law. It happens 50 days after Passover. So put yourself, if you will, in the mind of the disciples of Jesus. They, they've been with Jesus for three years. They've walked with him. They've heard his teaching. They've seen his miracles. It's been amazing what they've seen and what they've experienced. And then Jesus is arrested. He's tried and he's crucified. Do you know when he's crucified? It's Passover. 
He's crucified at Passover. And 50 days later is this celebration of Pentecost. And so for every, every good Jew during this time, when Passover happened, they would have recounted the story of how God had set them free from Egypt. They would have gone back and they would have told themselves the story. Remember Moses in the bush? Remember that? And they would have said, remember how God did all those cool plagues to set us free? Remember how Charlton Heston came down out of the mountain? They would have recounted all of those things. They would have told the story of Passover. And they would have likely in the upper room as they were talking about Passover and what it originally meant, they would have talked about how Jesus was infusing new meaning into this religious celebration. You remember Passover is the, it's the 10th plague, right? It's the, the moment where Pharaoh keeps saying, you guys can go. And then he says, just kidding, just kidding. You can't go, come back, you gotta stay. And then finally, God gives the 10th plague. And the 10th plague is he takes the life of the firstborn child of every home in the land of Egypt, without exception, unless your home had the blood of a perfect lamb put over the doorpost of your home. If a perfect spotless lamb without any kind of blemish had been sacrificed and the blood of that lamb had been spread on the doorpost of your home, when the angel of the Lord came to that home, he would pass over and go to the next home. And, and it was in this moment when, when God took the life of all the firstborn children of all of the homes in the land of Egypt that didn't have the blood of the lamb covering them that Pharaoh said, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. And this time, he's not going to change his mind, at least not until they're already gone. And they get out of Egypt and, and they actually plunder Egypt before they leave. They get stuff from their neighbors and they leave Egypt and, and they go out into the the wilderness. They're headed towards the Red Sea. And of course, you know the story, they, they kind of get blocked between the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's pursuing army because Pharaoh did change his mind and say, go get them. I want them back. But this time God opens up a way, makes a way where there is no way and they get to walk through on dry ground and, and they're, they're now set free. They're in the wilderness and Pharaoh's army pursues into the Red Sea and then God wipes them out. This is like a great Marvel movie in the making. I mean, it has all of the characteristics, right? And now they're free and they're in the wilderness and, and they go in the wilderness and they don't know who they are and they don't know where they're going. I mean, think about it. They've been in Egypt for a long, long time. And remember, before Egypt was their captor, Egypt was their deliverance. Remember back to the days of Joseph? Like they needed to go to Egypt to get food, and it was in Egypt that they grew and they expanded and they became what they were supposed to be. And then they, when Joseph died and the new Pharaoh was appointed and he didn't know anything about Joseph, he then enslaved God's people. Now God's setting them free and taking them to a new place, but they don't know who they are and they don't know where they're going. So what does God do? He comes to them. Pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
God is showing them who they are and where they're going. He gives them guidance. He gives them direction. And he takes them all the way to this place called Mount Sinai. And he gets them there and and, and it's on this day at Mount Sinai where the presence of God falls on the mountain and he comes in fire. There's lightning and there's thunder and there's smoke. And I mean, this is like scary. So much so that the people are like, Moses, you go talk to him. We're going to stay back here. I mean, this is, this is real for them. They, they are encountering the presence and the power and the might and majesty of God. And it is not just like fun, gentle God. This is like, if you get too close, you could die. Moses, you go talk to him. We're gonna stay back here. God descends on this mountain in fire and there's smoke and there's lightning and thunder and there's all of these things and, and the finger of God comes and writes these laws on these stone tablets and Moses brings them down and reveals to them not just who they are, that they're God's people. Because at Mount Sinai, God says, I'm your God and you're my people. But he gives them a mission. He says, you're going to go out into this world and you're going to be a light to all of the nations. And this is how I want you to live. And he gives them the law at Mount Sinai. And Jesus was crucified at Passover He's buried in a borrowed tomb. On the third day, he's raised again to new life. And, and now he's sh showing up with his disciples and he's talking to them. And no doubt they're having conversations about all of this stuff. He's giving them many convincing proofs that he's alive. That's what Acts 1-3 says. And as they're talking about who Jesus is and the kingdom of God and the reality of what Jesus is trying to accomplish, there's no doubt that they're reflecting on the story. And Jesus is saying, see the perfect lamb back there? I'm the lamb. And the blood that was on the doorpost, that's the blood that had to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. There's no doubt they're having these kind of conversations. They're talking about Passover and they're looking forward to Pentecost. And after 40 days, Jesus ascends to heaven. He goes, he's just taken up. And the disciples are standing there thinking, what now? Like, we, he was dead, we put him in a tomb, we got him back, and now he's gone again. What are we supposed to do? And then the angel of the Lord comes, right? He says, what are you doing looking up at the sky? You got work to do. You know what Jesus said, now go do it. And what Jesus had said to them was, go to Jerusalem and wait there for the gift that I've promised you. And when that gift is given, you'll have power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Just like God had come at Mount Sinai to tell them who they were and what their identity was. I'm your God. You're my people. Just like he'd given them a mission. Go and be a light to all the nations. Just like he'd said, this is how I want you to live. God sends his people in the book of Acts to this upper room where they pray and they wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the day that is designed to celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, God pours out his spirit on his people and he reminds them who they are. You're my people, you're my church. 
He gives them a mission. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That sounds an awful lot like you'll be a light to the nations. And with the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, he's teaching them how to live. Now, why did God send fire on the day of Pentecost? I think it's because when you think about the story from Passover to Pentecost, you can't get away from fire. Moses is called to be the deliverer of God's people. Why and how? At a bush that's burning but is not consumed. And he turns aside to look at this strange thing, Exodus chapter three, and God speaks to him and says, Moses, I want you to go set my people free. And even though Moses is reluctant, he does it, and God uses him and sets the people free. And when the people need direction and guidance and they need to be assured of his presence with them, he shows up in a pillar of fire. And when they get to Mount Sinai and God is telling them who they are and he's giving them a mission and he's telling them how to live, he comes on the mountain in fire. And so when God comes on the day of Pentecost in the upper room, he's coming in fire. He's coming to remind them, I'm with you. It's about presence. I'm I'm with you. I'm guiding you. I'm directing you. It's about power. I'm the God who sets you free. I'm the God who who set people free back in Egypt, and I'm the God who sets you free now. But, But the other reason that God gives fire is because fire is about God's desire to teach us how to live. Right? He 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 comes in Exodus chapter 20 at Mount Sinai, and he actually says to them, uh, I'm doing this because I want to put a sense of awe and fear inside of you so that you will not sin. This is what he says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. I'm coming to give you a sense of awe and fear so that you will not sin. Now, we might read Exodus chapter 20 and think to ourselves, this is like horror movie God. Like he's trying to scare sin out of us. But that, that's actually not what this is. I, I don't think. I, I actually think it's more love story God. That God is coming on this mountain to say, you've been in a land where there were all kinds of gods and you had to, you had to think about all these different gods who controlled all these different things. And I'm just here to let you know that I am the God above every other God. There is no other God beside me or above me. There is no God beyond me. I am the all-powerful, almighty God, and there is no one like me. And I'm here to tell you, I'm your God and you're my people. This is not horror movie God. This is love story God. This is God saying, I'm a jealous God and you ought to give everything that you are to me because there is no one else besides me. You belong to me. I'm your God and you are my people. And he does this so that we will not sin. Now, anytime we talk about sin, we get into all kinds of conversations. And the reason we get into all kinds of conversations is because we often talk about sin from our perspective. And that always disintegrates the conversation into what you think sin is versus what I think sin is. And then we're left with our feelings and our opinions. 
right? Your opinion that that's sin and my opinion that it's not or vice versa. And we go back and forth, which is just a great bit of effort in missing the whole point. Because you and I don't get to define sin. It doesn't really matter what you think is sin or not or what I think is sin or not. It doesn't matter what you feel about it or what your opinion is of it. God is the one who defines sin. That's what makes him God. And I'm telling you right now, the problem with our world is that we've taken this God who is God over everything and we've just brought him right down to be one of us. And then we have conversations with him about what we think is sin and about what he thinks is sin as if our opinions were on equal level with his. And we need to be reminded that God comes in fire. And that he, while he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and while he loves us unconditionally and welcomes us into his family, we need to be reminded today that God is God. And he writes the rules and he sets the standards. And our job is to comply. Because he is our God and we are his people. Fire represents his power that he can set us free. It represents his presence that he's going to be with us. He's going to guide us. But fire also represents purity because fire purifies. You take something that doesn't have much to it. If it's made of wood or hay or stubble, the scripture says and you put it in fire, it just gets burned up. It's gone like it never existed. It just disappears. But when you put something of value into fire, it lasts. In fact, the fire actually makes it stronger. It purifies it. It, 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 it actually builds it. And it continues to exist. Once the fire's out, it's still there. I remember going to our friend's house uh, when we used to live on the East Coast. Uh, my wife's family was in Wisconsin, and it's a long drive from Delaware to Wisconsin. And you need a good stopping point. And for a long time, Marion was our stopping point. We had friends here, and we would stay with Dennis and Midge Dietrich. And they had like a little lake, a little, little pond behind their house. And we would go, and we'd swim there and have cookouts. And it was a fun time. And we'd stay for a day or two, and then we'd drive to Wisconsin. And then like a week or so later, we'd stop again and, and hang out some more. And I remember one time where Midge said to me, I need this stuff burnt. I need you to create a burn pile and just burn it up. Well, that is a fun way to spend a day. I mean, and so I was like, let me add it. And I was throwing all kinds of, I burnt stuff she wanted me to burn. I'm pretty sure I burnt stuff she did not want me to burn. I was just burning stuff, anything I could get my hands on. And, and the whole point was she had this big wooden glider that was broken down and it was beyond repair and she just wanted it burnt up. And, and, and I built this fire and then we threw this, this kind of glider onto this fire and it, and it was consumed. I mean, the fire was raging. But when the fire was over, all of the hardware that wasn't wood, it was just there in a pile. It didn't get consumed because it was made of something that had more substance. 
See, fire gets rid of all the stuff that doesn't last. But the things that are intended to endure, they remain even when tried by fire. Fire purifies. Gets rid of all the other stuff that we're not supposed to have. Now, what does this have to do with Pentecost and this whole idea of living the Spirit-filled life? Well, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, he, I think, is envisioning Pentecost. He's writing to the people of God who are now in captivity because they sinned. God had given them a trajectory, a path. He'd given them the law and said, this is what it means to be my people. I want you to live this way. And God's people said, no, thanks. And they went a different way. They, they actually rebelled against God. And so God sent them into exile, right? He actually had an invading country come in and take them and haul them away to another place. And so they're living outside of their land as punishment for their sin. And God's trying to get them to return to him. And Jeremiah, his ministry is about that return. And he writes to the people of God. And you know some of the verses he wrote, right? Jeremiah 29, right? Verse 11. Even while they're in exile for their sin, Jeremiah says to them, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Even though you've messed up, I still have plans for your life. I'm not going to harm you. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you a future because I love you. You're my people. And I'm your God. And he says, you can, you can find me again if you just seek me with all of your heart, Jeremiah 29, 13. And then we get to Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah's talking to the people of God, and he says, there's a day coming when I will write my law on your hearts. You see, when, when Moses came down out of the mountain holding those stone tablets, the law had been written and they could see it and they could hear it. It could be spoken, but the law was outside of them. It was external to them. They could see it, they could hear it, and they could attempt to live it, but it was out there. And Jeremiah says there's a day that is coming when God's gonna take that law, which right now is outside of you, and he's gonna put it in your hearts. He's gonna actually write it on the tablet of your heart so that you can begin to live it out. I think Jeremiah is envisioning the day of Pentecost. He's looking ahead and he's saying, there's a day coming when God's going to put his law right inside of you so that you know how to live. And then we fast forward and we get to another prophet, the prophet Malachi. And Malachi talks about God. And he says, who in the world is ever going to be able to stand up when he comes? He is like a blazing fire. He's like a strong soap that you use to bleach your clothes. He sits like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. Malachi is using this image to talk about God, and he's saying, This is who God is. He's a fire. And he sits like a refiner of silver. Do you know how silver is refined? You just get a fire burning really, really hot. And you take silver and you put it in that fire. And you know what happens to it when you put it in the fire? It melts. It's not consumed, but it melts. And when it melts, you know what happens? Any impurity that's in that silver, it comes to the surface. 
comes all the way to the top and the fire that's burning hot, it burns away the impurities because the impurities don't have value. They don't have worth. They, they're just consumed by the fire. And you know what's left when you take that silver out of that hot fire and you let it cool down it, it hardens, it solidifies again. And now you're left with silver that's more pure than when the process started. Do you know how the refiner of silver knows his job is done? And he looks at that silver and he sees himself. He says, that's done. That's pure, so pure that I can see my own reflection in it. God sits like a refiner of silver over our lives. And what he wants to do is take our lives and bring all of the junk to the surface and burn it away so that we are pure and holy just like him so that he can see his reflection in us. How does that happen? We go back to Acts chapter two. When the Holy Spirit's poured out, he shows up like fire. Why? Because fire purifies. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. In Galatians chapter five, we're told about the work of the Spirit. And, and there's a comparison that's given in Galatians chapter five. And this is the comparison Paul writes this letter to Christians and he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. In other words, when you give yourself to the sinful nature that is inside of you and you just do what you want to do in your own humanity, there's a whole bunch of junk and dross that shows up in your life. But when you give yourself to the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit, something else happens. Paul continues writing, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, there's a bunch of junk that can show up in your life, but the Spirit of God can take all of that away and replace it with the fruit of Christ-like character. How do, we, how do we get there? How do we unlock and unleash the Spirit's work in our lives? It's what we talked about last week passionate pursuit and full surrender. We just run hard after God and say, God, we want more of you and less of us. We want to give ourselves completely to you. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, where he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in other words, God's been so good to you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son and he didn't give him to condemn you. He gave, he gave him to save you, to rescue you, to redeem you. And Jesus gave his life on the cross and he shed his blood for you and, and he was buried and on the third day he was raised again. And because of what Jesus has done, when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you're justified, you're made right with God. And you become one of God's children. Paul says, in view of all of what God has done for you, you have to offer something back to God now. Not to earn it, 
Christ paid for it. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. But once you've received it, you ought to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the word for body here means your physical body and everything you do with it. Who you are in this world, how you show up, your attitudes, your actions, your words, your thoughts, your behaviors, every part of who you are, you offer that back to God as a living sacrifice. Don't miss the language here. He's talking about sacrifice because the people he's writing to know what sacrifice looks like. They look through their flock, they find the perfect lamb, this little lamb that has no spot, no blemish, and they take that lamb, the very best of their flock, and they carry it with them to the temple, and they give that to the priest, and the temple lays that lamb on the altar and cuts the throat of that lamb to slaughter it so that blood can be spilled, so sins can be forgiven. And Paul says, you ought to be that for God, except instead of dying, you ought to keep living. But you shouldn't live as yourself anymore because you've died to yourself and you're alive to Christ. When you're baptized, you're buried with Christ and you're raised again to new life. It is no longer you who live. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I am not living my own life anymore. I'm letting Christ live life in me. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And what happens when you do that? You're transformed. You're not pushed into the pattern of this world any longer. You're not conformed to the way the world thinks and behaves and acts. No, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you keep giving yourself as a living sacrifice and God keeps transforming you, what happens? You discover God's will for your life and you begin to walk in the way that God wants you to walk. God comes in fire to purify us, to make us holy, to transform us so that we won't sin anymore. We'll do what God wants us to do. And more than anything else, I want you to know today, it is the will of God for you to be sanctified. It is the will of God for you to be made pure and holy in his sight. It is the will of God for you to let him refine your life so that you reflect him well in this world. He is a consuming fire and he sits over our lives as the refiner of silver. And if we'll let him, he'll burn all the junk out of our life and he will make us pure and holy. And this is what he is calling us to as his church. Now I've asked the band to lead us in a song and it's a song you may or may not know. It doesn't matter if you know it. It is a song that is this message. It's a song that talks about the refining work of God and the, the fire of God and the desire that we have to be consumed as a living sacrifice so that it is God who lives in and through us. And as we sing this song this morning, and if you don't know it, you don't have to sing it. Just talk to God while we're singing and ask God to burn away all the junk of your life, to make you pure and holy. Some of you last week fought the invitation. You, you knew you should have come forward to say, I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. And today is second chance, take two. 
If you're here today and you are not full of the Holy Spirit, you've not surrendered control, there's no better time than the present. You ought to do it today. Because we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us pure, to make us holy. So church, I wanna invite you to stand. And if you wanna come forward this morning, the altars are open as they always are, but you can stand and reflect where you're at. You can pray and ask God to do his work in your life. You can sing this song, raise your hands, kneel down. Whatever God is asking you to do, whatever would help you seek him, just do that today. Because we need God to refine us and make us pure and holy. So let's pursue him as we sing this song.